0: The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at EmanuelCommunity.org. I do want to begin by uh, acknowledging, before I get into the sermon, this uh, Highland Park shooting that happened just in our backyard. I, I think it's hit a lot of us very hard. Um, I think with the iconic image that comes from that Fourth of July shooting was all of these abandoned lawn chairs and uh, scooters and bicycles that were just laying all over the, the uh, roadside as people fled for their lives. And it's one thing to watch the news and find out that there was a shooting in Texas or somewhere else, but you know this was really right in our backyard. And um, I don't know, I, I think there is, a mounting sense of grief, as well as anger in the country that something has to change here. Um, how many of our children and, and others are we gonna sacrifice um, in our inability to take any action about this? Um, I, I think, uh, you know. I've, I've already talked with some of you, had, had casual conversations where some of you had just been confiding that the shooting has really unsettled you and maybe in some pretty deep ways that you can't even fully process in terms of a sense of insecurity or fear or other emotions that you may be experiencing. And what we wanna say is um, we would love to uh, meet with you if you're kind of feeling that way and feeling like you need to process some of those thoughts in the wake of the shooting. Um, And so as pastors and other staff, we would uh, make ourselves available to you. Uh, Even if you feel that you would benefit from some professional counseling, Uh, to to process through the trauma of everything and you don't have the funds to cover the cost of that, please talk to us because we do have uh, money set aside in our budget every year to provide for some counseling services for people who feel they may even need some professional counseling. As a church, let's continue, though, to pray and lift up our community, our Chicagoland area as we grieve together for the seven uh, families that are grieving the loss Uh, of those seven who are killed um, as well as the ones who have been injured and maimed others that are still in the hospital in serious condition as well as those who even just witnessed what happened uh, sharing some of the horrors of the scene that they saw uh, of the people lying there on the street and things like that and so um, let's let's just keep that all in prayer uh, on a little bit of a brighter note, it is my understanding that Doe Kim is with us. Is he here this morning? Yes. Let's, let's all uh, give a clap to, to Doe and Sam who are here after uh, just uh, going through some major surgery and recovery. And so it's so awesome to see uh, him worshiping with us. And so welcome, Doe, back. And uh, are so glad that you feel strong enough to, to be in worship with us once again. And so that's such an awesome answer to, to prayer for for uh, your recovery. Let's let's come together in prayer now as we uh, come to the word. Father, we uh, do come to you with a heavy heart uh, in light of just what's happened so recently uh, right here in Chicagoland in Highland Park. And I do uh, want to echo that prayer of Myungin that prayed uh, for the survivors of these who have lost their lives. Um, that you would reach out to them in your love for them, in the grieving of your own heart. May they know that there is a God who loves them and cares for them, who can be uh, their greatest source of support in this moment of need. God, we pray for our nation with one mass shooting after another that you would uh, grant to the leaders of our nation the resolve and the wisdom needed to take serious steps to um, curb the violence that is going on in our nation, whether it's through common sense gun laws or the improvement of mental health services or in every direction of what is needed to protect our people, Lord. We pray that some serious changes might be made, that this doesn't have to be a regular reality that we have to just come to learn to live with as a nation. We pray that the church, especially in moments like this, Even ICC would rise to bear witness to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That even when the very foundations of our life seem to crumble and nothing seems secure, uh, that we would be ones who would bear witness to the fact that there is a God in heaven and his son Jesus Christ who so loved the world that he had died for us that we might know eternal life. And so help us to represent you well to people to give them a hope in Jesus Christ. We thank you for Doe and for uh, his recovery from his surgery. Thank you, Father God, that uh, your faithfulness allows him to stand here this day through those darkest valleys and through those most painful trials that you have saw, saw, seen him through and allow him to be here with us. We don't take that from granted, but know that it expresses your amazing and jealous love for your child. And so thank you that he is here with us this morning, worshiping with us. Grant to us hearts of understanding as we turn to a difficult teaching this morning about the narrow gate and the narrow road as we submit ourselves to the authority of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're now reaching the end of the uh, sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And I pointed out in the very first message in this series that um, this sermon captures some of the most famous teachings of Jesus and yet, the paradox is that as famous as they are, even as Christians, many times, we really don't know what to do with them. And uh, sorry, could we just go to black screen on this, if we could? Um, we just really don't know what to do with this sermon. Uh, these teachings, like turning the other cheek, or loving your enemy, or not lusting in our hearts, frankly, for many of us, they seem impossible to obey. And so we come to the conclusion then that none of us can actually live by these commandments, these commands. And so, sadly, we don't even try. And in not even trying, the truth is for many of us, even who call ourselves Christians, we don't even feel that guilty about not trying because there's just so unrealistically idealistic and impossible so others have tried to resolve the tension of understanding the sermon by saying well maybe Jesus never meant for us to obey this stuff these aren't really commands to be obeyed instead what Jesus was doing here was that he was by arguing these extreme demands that God places on us basically just showing us how sinful we are and how incapable we are of pleasing God. And so in other words, um, the whole point of the sermon is to teach us the need for grace. Um, Others deal with the radical nature of these teachings um, by basically softening them and basically saying, obey them or try to, but only to a point. So. You know, um, do your best, but don't go crazy over it. Uh, take it all with a grain of salt. So turn the other cheek. Yeah, sure, that's great. Turn the other cheek when someone hurts you, but uh, don't become a doormat, and don't let people walk all over you, because you've got rights, you've got to fight for your rights. Uh, I, I read this quote in that very first message from uh, Pincus Lapid, who says, the history of the impact of the Sermon on the Mount can largely be described in terms of an attempt to domesticate everything in it that is shocking, demanding, uncompromising, and render it harmless. And sadly, I would have to agree with what Lapid says. is I think this is largely what has happened in the church is we've taken these radical teachings of Jesus and we've domesticated them to the point that they become harmless. Meaningless, even. But here is the problem. The problem with all three of these approaches to the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus ends the sermon in a very interesting way, where he gives three series of contrasts. Two roads, two trees, and then finally, two houses. And his point for each one of these contrasts couldn't be clearer. He says, listen, I expect you to obey this teaching. I, these are not philosophies I'm throwing around and playing around with in the academy here. I fully expect my disciples to live by this teaching. And to obey what I am teaching you this day. And so that's how we're going to end the series on the Sermon on the Mount. Is we're going to look at each of these comparisons that Jesus makes. Between the narrow road and the wide road. The good tree and the bad tree. And then the house built on the rock. And the house built on the sand. To see what Jesus is trying to get us to understand about the sermon as his disciples. And for today, we want to look at the first of them, which is the two roads. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, it says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I want to structure my message today around answering two questions that arise as a result of these short verses. And so let's begin with the first question, and it is simply this. How many will enter the narrow gate and road that lead to life? In other words, what does Jesus mean by few? Because um, I think this is why this is one of the most disturbing teachings of Jesus. is He seems to be suggesting that there aren't many who are going to be saved. Um, it's confusing because sometimes when you read the Bible, there are these passages that seem to describe a picture in which there will be many who are going to be saved. And so one example is the story where Jesus has an encounter with this Roman centurion, and after discovering his great faith, he says this in Matthew 8, verse 11, I say to you that many will come, many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, in the kingdom of heaven. Okay? And so you're kind of left saying, well, so what is it? Is it many? Many? Is it few? I think it's helpful to look at this exchange that Jesus has with this particular person after he hears Jesus teaching uh, in the Gospel of Luke, which helps us to understand how to answer this question a little better. Luke chapter 13, verse 22 to 25 says this. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. There must have been something in the teaching of Jesus that unraveled this person, unsettled him to make this person, and actually we don't know the gender, it could be a woman or a man, uh, basically asking Jesus, are not many people gonna be saved? And I think what we can learn from Jesus' response to this person is this. It's not really our business to try to figure out what percentage of the population is gonna be in heaven, okay? That's not our business. Because Jesus doesn't even entertain an answer to the fundamental question, how many people are you talking about here, Jesus? Instead, what he does to this person is he urges this person to say, what I want to say to you if you're worried about that is, listen to my teaching and follow me. Because you have a clear choice to make in your life. You cannot sit on the fence when it comes to what you do with me. A decision must be made a choice has to be made. What Jesus is in essence saying is this, all of humanity is gonna be divided by me. Those who are saved and those who are not. And the singular issue is, what did you do with me? What is your relationship with me? And so this worry of how many, how restrictive is Jesus? How, how large is, it, is the kingdom of God gonna be? I mean, in any given church, how many of us can we expect to find there in the afterlife? And Jesus is, in essence, saying, listen, that's not your business. That's not for you to know. But what is your business is what do you do with me? How do you respond to my invitation to eternal life? This is the choice that every single person in this world must face. Well, then this leads us to the second question that I want to address, that I want to spend the majority of my sermon today unpacking. And it is this. What makes the gate and road that lead to life so narrow? Why is this the narrow road that few enter? Whereas the road to destruction is the wide road that the crowds are gathered around. Is it because Jesus demands so much of his followers? Well, in order to answer this question, I need to pull back a little and say this. There has been a long-standing debate going on in the church over this very issue about what it requires to be saved. and this is a bit of an oversimplification, but in one camp, which we can call the Lordship Salvation Camp, it kinda is the argument that, listen, you cannot accept Jesus as only Savior. You have to accept him as Savior and Lord, and you cannot have one without the other. So you must obey his commands and do what he tells you to do. That is part of the requirement of being saved. And They point to passages like Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler to make their argument. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 21 to 25, Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. When, his disciple, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? So there you go. That's the argument saying, listen, Jesus lays it all out there. It's not you know, so simple as just saying, well, I want to accept him as my Savior. You must also follow him as your Lord. And then on the other side of the debate is what we can call the free grace camp, free grace. And those are the ones who argue that the Bible teaches that we are saved by grace. And therefore, if you tack on lordship as part of that requirement, then you are no longer being saved by grace alone. You are being saved by grace and something else, which is your lordship commitment to Jesus. And so this, lord, this free grace camp rejects that notion that you need lordship as part of the requirement for salvation. And they'll point to verses like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now here's the question I want to ask you. Which Which of these two camps is right? the lordship salvation folks or the free grace people. Um, And the argument here is that both of them, for as different as they are in their view of lordship is concerned, um, actually both have salvation wrong in some way. And Let me try to explain it. what they actually have in common is a view of salvation that basically what God is after is making sure that you have a right status with him. Okay? In other words, for both camps, they see salvation as primarily a legal matter of being declared innocent by God so that in his eyes you are considered righteous. That, in many ways, is the whole of salvation, as they would argue, and why is that so important? Because having right legal status with God is going to determine where I go when I die. If God declares me righteous, then I go to heaven. If I am not righteous, then I go to hell. And for the free grace people, what they would say is that requirement to get to heaven is simply to believe that Jesus died for my sins. As for the Lordship Salvation people, they say the requirement is to believe that Jesus died for your sins, but also to have obedience that shows the reality of your faith that Jesus is Lord. But the problem is this. For both of these camps, they are arguing about what are the requirements to pass the test of righteousness with God as our judge so that we can go to heaven when we die. And that's a problem because I don't think that's how the Bible itself describes the invitation to salvation, is make sure that you know what the requirements are so when you die you will go to heaven. It's interesting, when I was younger there was this program called Evangelism Explosion, EE for short, which was how most of us got trained into how to share our faith with others. And the heart of E.E.'s methodology was around these two diagnostic questions that you were supposed to ask non-Christians. And it was these. The first one was, do you know for sure that you are going to be with God in heaven? And then the second question was, if God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And so as I said just a moment ago, both the free grace camp and the Lordship Salvation Camp, uh, basically they're, they're following this idea, this format. Okay, It's basically, do you know where you're going to go when you die? And then if you don't, how are you going to answer that question? And basically what EE e. is suggesting is, you better have the right doctrinal answers. Because when you die and you stand at the gate of heaven, What is awaiting you is a pop quiz. And God is going to ask you this question. And you better have the right answer. Because if you don't have the right answer, you're not getting in. This is salvation by pop quiz. Okay? And this is not ever how Jesus presents eternal life to us is make sure that you have the facts straight doctrinally so that you can answer God correctly when you get to heaven. A more accurate picture of salvation in the Bible is this. it is a, Salvation is an intimate trusting relationship with Jesus. Trusting him not only for our eternal destiny but also for every need that we have in this present life. Another way we could say it is like this. Because of of our confidence in Jesus' leadership over us, we surrender all outcomes to him and follow his wisdom and trust his promises in all things. This life is only possible through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. A changed heart, changed by God. Okay. This is how I argue the Bible presents salvation. A person who has surrendered their life to Jesus in full trust of him and his promises, his leadership, his wisdom, that is only possible through the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. What I'm saying is this, when my primary motivation to be saved is my fear of going to hell, then I am likely to view my relationship with God much more transactionally. Because the way I logic it is, because of my sin, I am guilty. And because of my guilt, I am not going to go to heaven. And so my entire focus will be then, is how am I going to get God to declare me innocent when I am guilty? To be righteous when I am unrighteous? What are the hoops that I must jump through in order to be saved? This is what Dallas Willard calls the gospel of sin management. I have a sin problem, and I have to figure out how to manage this sin problem. Now, let me say this because I suspect some of you are getting very confused and very distressed right now. The issue of sin and guilt are real. The issue of eternal destiny is real. Real. But what I am saying is that the gospel message as presented by Jesus himself is so much more than managing your guilt problem. The best way to describe Jesus' mission of dying on the cross isn't so that we can go to heaven when we die. Jesus died on the cross to restore our broken relationship with God and to usher in his kingdom. And so, to accept Jesus' invitation to eternal life is to enter into that kingdom, accepting Jesus' kingly rule over our lives. In other words, what I'm saying is, believing in Jesus isn't believing in some historical facts, even if those facts have to do with the cross and the resurrection, so that we can pass God's pop quiz when we die and stand at the gates of heaven. And he asks, why should I let you in? It is about a real relationship with God as a person. Learning to trust in his wisdom and his care over us. And that begins in this life. This life. Not just on your deathbed. It is to say, because I have confidence that Jesus cares for me, I can turn the other cheek. And I can love my enemy. Because of my confidence in Jesus' love for me, I don't have to worry about my future or idolize money. Dallas Willard puts it like this in The Divine Conspiracy. The issue, so far as the gospel in the gospels is concerned, is whether we are alive to God or dead to him. Do we walk in an interactive relationship with him that constitutes a new kind of life, life from above? What must be emphasized in all of this is the difference between trusting Christ, the real person Jesus, with all that that naturally involves versus trusting some arrangement for sin remission set up through him. Trusting only his role as guilt remover. To trust the real person Jesus is to have confidence in him in every dimension of our real life. To believe that he is right about and adequate for to everything. Christians have been led to believe that God, for some unfathomable reason, just thinks it appropriate to transfer credit from Christ's merit account to ours and to wipe out our sin debt upon inspecting our mind and finding that we believe in a particular theory of the atonement to be true. Even if we trust everything but God in all other matters that concern us. It is left unexplained it is possible that one can rely on Christ for the next life without doing so for this one. Trust him for one's eternal destiny without trusting him for quote the things that relate to Christian life. Is this really possible? Surely it is not, not within one life. The eternal life of which Jesus speaks is not knowledge about God but an intimately interactive relationship with him i think there is so much confusion in the church today about what it means to be saved and far too many christians think that as long as i believe the right set of facts i'm going to go to heaven when i die and that couldn't be further from the way that the bible itself talks about salvation what can i ask you simply in this moment is your understanding of salvation? Why do you think you are saved? Is it because you believe in the historical facts that Jesus died on a cross? Or because maybe there was a point in your life when you said the sinner's prayer? Because I think the way God evaluates the reality of eternal life in you is to simply say, is there an actual relationship with you and God in which every day in this life, not just for when you die and hopefully get to heaven, but in this life you are learning to put your trust in Him. And some of you may say, well, what does that even look like? (laughs) I would argue that's exactly what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. In Matthew 5 through 7, in three long chapters, Jesus paints for us a picture of what life looks like of faith. Life under the leadership of Jesus. In other words, God's mission is not just to get us to the right place when we die, but also to rescue us from the path of destruction that is caused by the sin in our life, in this life. What he is saying through the Sermon on the Mount is your lust that rages in your heart, the anger that is brewing underneath your breath, the contempt that you have for others, the judgmentalism, your love for money, your consumption with anxiety and worry, all of that is this road of destruction that is destroying your life right now. But what Jesus is offering to us through the Sermon on the Mount is by coming under his leadership by faith, of making Jesus king of your life, you can experience victory over those things. That is the narrow road that leads to eternal life. Eternal life is not just talking about the afterlife, it's talking about the kind of life we experience with God in this present life on earth. It is a life of abundance, it is a life of fullness, of grace, of freedom, of joy. And so I want to return to that question that I asked, the second question. Why is this road so narrow and so few people on it? Well, it's because trusting Jesus and surrendering to his leadership isn't something most of us are interested in. If you go back to that story of the rich young ruler he asked this question, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? It's so transactional, isn't it? It's all about self-preservation. But Jesus was inviting him into an actual relationship with him, a life of trusting surrender that needed necessarily to include this vast wealth that he possessed which was actually the controlling power over his life. It was his idol and Jesus saw that. And so it wasn't, let me set the bar here and see how high you can jump by giving all of your money to the poor. He was saying, the salvation that I wanna offer you is a life with me in which I set you free from this road of destruction that you're on and what is destroying you is your love of money. And under my leadership, I can give you victory over that. But rather than hearing Jesus' words as an invitation to eternal life, this rich young ruler heard it as a threat. And therefore, he walked away from Jesus' invitation to eternal life. The gate and the road are narrow because the path of discipleship is a difficult one that doesn't attract many people. And I'll be the first one to admit that I struggle to surrender control in my own heart to God. This is a growth process. We don't all arrive fully formed in day one. We grow into this. Just illustrated a bit of a maybe safer, lighthearted way. Um, It's kind of funny, but my closest friends and family members, uh, they sometimes joke around that I am a one-man consumer reports. Because what they argue is, Whatever I buy of anything, that's what everyone should buy, (laughs) you know? Because I do endless research over everything I purchase. And that's because I have some really strong preferences over what I own. And I know what I want, okay? I know what I want. And so for years now, I have been searching for the perfect pillow. (laughs) And I haven't found it yet. But every six months or a year, I throw out that one, and I get another one. Because I'm looking for a very specific level of firmness and the perfect angle of my head and neck. Because sometimes I actually get some neck pains and stuff, and it hurts. Uh, I came really close once with this memory foam pillow. (laughs) And it was the best night of sleep I got for like months. But there were some issues with it. It was too dense. It was too heavy and it caused some other problems so eventually as much as I liked it I got rid of it. Um, Recently I did a really deep dive into satin pillowcases (laughs) because I was wondering maybe that's the problem it's not the pillow it's the pillowcase. So you it's embarrassing to tell you how much research I, I actually didn't know satin wasn't a material it's actually a weave did you know that did you know satin is a weave and not a material so there's many types of satin pillowcases that I discovered. <laughs> but after weeks of this, <laughs> I said, it's not satin, and I gave up. Um, <laughs> Some of you know I'm a very avid pickleball player. And over these last several years, I've ordered and returned over a dozen pickleball paddles. I've returned them all because none of them are what I'm looking for. There is this perfect pickleball paddle that I'm still searching for. And as long as they have a free return policy, I'm gonna order them all until I find it. Some of you know I've been on a keto diet for a few months. And I've created this insane database of over 50 keto products that has rated every single one of them according to taste and texture and... (laughs) You know, grams of net carbs and all of this, okay? You get the idea, okay? You get the idea. I want the things that conform to my preferences, to fit my needs. And listen, you might not be like me. You may think, this, our pastor's crazy. You, know? <laughs> uh, you might not be like me when it comes to purchasing stuff. You know, you just look at the first hit on Amazon and go, that's good enough, and then you order it. But I'm willing to bet that in different ways, you are just like me. In the sense that you want life on your own terms, to conform to your will. And what I'm saying is there is this very real danger that we transfer that same attitude toward God in our relationship with God. We want God even to bend to our will rather than surrendering to his will and following his leadership. And what Jesus is saying is that discipleship cannot happen on those terms. There is a surrender required to enter into this eternal life that Jesus offers. Again, Willard says that the divine conspiracy The narrow gate is not, as so often assumed, doctrinal correctness. The narrow gate is obedience and the confidence in Jesus necessary to it. We can see that it is not doctrinal correctness because many people who cannot even understand the correct doctrines nevertheless place their full faith in him. Moreover, we find many people who seem to be very correct doctrinally but have hearts full of hatred and unforgiveness. The broad gate, by contrast, is simply doing whatever I want to do. That's why the road to destruction is so wide. That road is defined simply by you do your will. You just do you. (laughs) Whatever you want to do, that's the road to destruction. Scott McKnight, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, puts it like this. There is one reason the gate is narrow. It is demanding discipleship. The gate is narrow because it requires a person to turn from sin, to follow Jesus, to do the will of God as taught by Jesus. The gate is not just a mild association with Jesus or some kind of general affiliation, but a radical commitment to Jesus as the one who is king and Lord who shapes all of life for us. And so following Jesus is the narrow and unpopular road because none of us wants to give that control over to him. That's why it takes faith to follow Jesus. Let me just close with this. I think one of the most heartbreaking stories to come out of this 4th of July Highland Park shooting, and I think all of you have heard the story by now, is this little toddler, 2-year-old, boy named Aidan McCarthy, who sadly his mother and father were both killed by this gunman. And if you've read up on the details of that story, it's just so heartbreaking. Um, witnesses actually found the father still alive, but bleeding to death. And what he had done is he had taken Aiden and completely engulfed him, shielding his son with his own body and taking all the bullets in himself. And realizing that the father, Kevin, was still breathing, those who came to the rescue pulled Aiden out from under him. And they kept saying to the father, your son is going to be okay. He's alive. He's unhurt. He's going to be okay. If there is any light to be found in the horrible darkness of what happened on the 4th of July, it is the hope that Aidan, who has now become an orphan, will one day understand the depth of his father's love for him when he is told the story when he's old enough of how his father gave up his life to save his own life. Because at the very heart of it, that is the gospel story that the Bible tells. Jesus became king, not through a coronation ceremony, but through an act of unimaginable self-giving love when he allowed himself to be crucified on a Roman cross. It is this king that gave everything for us, who calls us to trust in him and follow him. Diedrich Bonhoeffer writes in his book, Discipleship. The road of the disciples is narrow. To give witness to and to confess the truth of Jesus, but to love the enemy of this truth, who is his enemy and our enemy with the unconditional love of Jesus Christ, that is a narrow road. To believe in Jesus' promise that those who follow shall possess the earth, but to encounter the enemy unarmed, to prefer suffering injustice to doing ill, that is a narrow road. To perceive other people as being weak and wrong, but never to judge them. To proclaim the good news to them, but never to throw pearls before swine. That is a narrow road. It is an unbearable road. As long as I recognize this road as the one I am commanded to walk and try to walk it in fear of myself, it is truly impossible. But if I see Jesus Christ walking ahead of me, step by step, if i look only to him and follow him step by step then i will be protected on this path let's pray